This is Interviews, a podcast from the National Academy of Sciences that provides first-person accounts of the lives and work of Academy members. In this series of one-on-one conversations, scientists talk about what inspired them to pursue the careers they chose and describe some of the most fascinating aspects of their research. Diane Griffin's science education started early. The daughter of a geologist, Griffin learned about the world from every hike or drive she shared with her father. But in the end, it wasn't rocks that won her heart. It was viruses. Griffin has spent her career studying how viruses make us sick and how our bodies respond to them. Her work has shed light on how viruses impact the nervous system and the immune system and on the surprising ways they can continue to affect health long after patients recover. Diane Griffin is the Alfred and Jill Summer Professor and Chair in Molecular Microbiology and Immunology at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. She was elected to the National Academy of Sciences in 2004. Diane Griffin, I'm Chair of the Department of Molecular Microbiology and Immunology at the Johns Hopkins School of Public Health, Bloomberg School of Public Health. (laughs) And I was elected to the Academy in 2004. Where did you grow up? I grew up, I was born in Iowa, but I was moved, was moved by my parents at a very young age, six weeks I think, uh, to Oklahoma. My father was uh, a graduate student at the University of Iowa at the time I was born, and he took a job in the oil business. Uh, as a petroleum geologist, and uh, so I grew up and we moved first to Tulsa, but then uh, by five years of age, Oklahoma City. So I grew up in Oklahoma City, really. I remember our house is quite large, but since I've gone back to it, it really was quite small (laughs) on on an acre of land, on on fairly, you know, large land, and uh, the neighborhood was, I would say, very suburban, you know very non-diverse, <laughs> waspy, <laughs> and uh, I went to the same a consolidated uh, public school uh, that frequently walked to, but it was more than a mile, but uh, walked to school, and, um, and Oklahoma's pretty flat, Oklahoma City's pretty flat, so some trees. But <laughs> How did you first become interested in science? Well, as I said, my father's a geologist, and so science sort of permeated our house, and uh, his PhD thesis was in um, basically the geology of the Teton, North Teton Range, and so we would spend vacations for sure, always in the mountains, and then he went back for a period of time and taught at the college where he went to school, which was Augustana College, which was in Rock Island, Illinois where our parents met, actually. And um, after the Second World War, when there was a big influx of students, he left his job with the oil company for three or four years, and so we lived in Rock Island during that period of time. I was in first grade or so, something like that. And uh, <coughs> then we would spend whole summers. He would do field courses for, uh, for geology students, and we would spend whole summers in, uh, mountains or the Black Hills of South Dakota or different places. But every time you would go for a walk, every time you would do a drive, (laughs) any road cut, (laughs) any 
rocks or anything. Everything was a science lesson when we were growing up. Now, I don't know if that's really the reason that I became particularly interested in science because neither of my sisters who had the same exposures are scientists. <laughs> They're doing other things. But, um, but anyway, I, you know, we were certainly immersed in that sort of thing. And then I just remember liking science in high school. We had a very good science teacher in high school. And uh, it was something that I think I was just good at. You know, it was fairly easy for me, but also was very interesting to me. So I think I knew from the time I was in high school, at least, that science was probably what I was most likely to I don't know. Didn't have. I didn't have a great plan. I can tell you that. But I mean, would be most likely the direction I would go. I guess. So I went to Augustana College, which is the same school my parents had gone to. They really were great believers in. Well, they're great believers in that school, but also in sort of small. It's a small liberal arts school. You know, liberal arts education. So. Both my sisters went there. None of us were ever given a choice. So it was none of this, like with my children, you know, trooping around to various colleges and visiting and deciding and that sort of thing. It was a given that that was where we were going to go to college. And it was a good choice. Like I think many small arts colleges, you know, the professors are very involved with the students, the teaching the classes, you know, it's uh, uh, and uh, a lot of emphasis on education and, and what their students do. The one downside was that when it came to graduate from college and figure out what I was going to do next, which I certainly had no, again, great plan of what I was going to do next, um, and there weren't a lot of people that knew a lot of options or what the options were could in, and really advise me about the options. and. As I said, I was interested in biology, and I was interested in biology from you know a very early point, probably. But I, you know, I really was interested in biology. I became interested in microbiology while I was in college. It was a microbiology course, and so I was interested in that. And you know, I think that I clearly was interested in the disease aspects, microbes that cause disease, and that aspect of microbiology. But one of the things that really wasn't at all clear to me or wasn't didn't seem like it was a real option to me was to go to medical school which I think I probably would have considered uh, it you know if, if I had thought if I could see that as a logical path or a reasonable path I probably would have done that but I didn't and <laughs> decided to uh, to go to graduate school uh, and get a PhD in uh, microbiology I only applied to two schools. I applied to Harvard and to Stanford because they were both places I'd heard of, not necessarily because those were the best microbiology departments. And I went to Stanford, and after I got there, I decided to, to transition from the PhD program into medical school. So I ended up doing a, well, I ended up with an empty PhD because I gerrymandered it together. And I think that it was just that, um, that, that whole process of, uh, of the, I don't know, what we now call pathogenesis, but uh, you know, how the host and the microbe interact to end up causing disease was very fascinating uh, to me. And um, I did eventually, or fairly quickly, learn that actually taking care of patients was probably not 
what I was, first of all, particularly good at, <laughs> and second, the part that, probably not the part that interested me the most, it was much more figuring out the disease and then how that disease process worked. And, and I liked working in the laboratory, so eventually that's the way I transitioned, but it took a while. How did you uh, come to be interested in viruses? Oh, so viruses, um, I don't know why I got fascinated with viruses. I think I got fascinated with viruses during the, so there was a microbiology course as a part of the, uh, of, well, both the PhD, but also the medical school uh, classes. And I don't know, the virus diseases were just always most interesting to me. Uh, so I, I really don't know. And then the opportunity to work was when I went to Hopkins to work as somebody who worked on viruses, was, uh, was interested in and worked on virus infections of the nervous system. And uh, so my project was uh, to work on a particular uh, uh, virus that uh, model system that he had recently brought back actually from Australia, he'd done some work in Australia. And so, um, it's, a, it's a mosquito-borne virus, it's, it's a very simple virus, I mean, we didn't know that much about it at the time, but uh, you can infect mice with this particular virus and they will develop a disease, an encephalitis, uh, which is an inflammatory disease of the nervous system. Uh, from which they may or may not recover. And so uh, understanding both what leads to fatal disease versus what leads to recovery uh, from disease were was one of the questions. It was at the very beginning of when people were trying to understand immune responses to viruses uh, and even you know what types of immune responses there were. You need an animal model in order to be able to ask those kinds of questions. You could do a lot in, in tissue culture, or what we call in vitro, and culturing viruses in cells. And you have to do that in order to be able to have virus to be able to infect your mice with, or to be able to assay the virus and know how much virus is there, how it grows in the you know, brain, or the spinal cord. But in order to really understand those interactions between the host and the virus, which are determining outcome uh, from the infection, which is what I was really interested in, is understanding why, you know, what determined whether you ended up with uh, fatal disease, paralysis, or, or recovery, uh, complete recovery from infection. And the other advantage of this particular, one of the reasons I continue to study it is that it has the advantage that it only infects, there are a lot of different kinds of cells in the nervous system. And the ones that, that you know, tell us what to do and to move and talk, etc., are neurons. And this virus only infects neurons. So it was an opportunity to really be able to interact, to look at the interaction between the virus and this particularly specialized cell. And cells are, are and neurons are uh, terminally differentiated cells. So, uh, if the virus kills the neuron, then you don't recover, and you know you you can't grow more neurons. Uh, so it, it's not the same as getting an infection in the lung or the you know respiratory tract or the getting diarrhea. You you make those cells can get infected and get killed, and you just make more of them. Recover. But to recover from an infection of neurons uh, 
it, it was, was puzzling. I mean, still, we don't totally understand it. So in order to clear a virus, you're going to have to clear that infected, you have to get rid of that infected cell or somehow make that cell quit making any virus anymore. And so how do you allow the cell, especially if it's an important cell that you can't replace, like a neuron, how can you clear the virus from that neuron without killing the neuron? This is what we call non-cytolytic killing. And so basically uh, some of the things that we've done is first of all describe the, the fact and the mechanisms that the immune system can use for shutting down virus replication in a cell like a neuron and, uh, and then uh, without then sacrificing the neuron. Uh, so antibody can do that uh, and the ability of antibody to actually suppress uh, replication of a virus in, inside a cell um, was not a previously recognized uh, mechanism for controlling uh, virus infection and then we've also shown that interferon gamma can contribute to that but the most important is antibody. The other thing that we've found is that after that process is complete you can't find the virus anymore that if you use if you use a sensitive technique to look for the RNA, not just whether you have whole virus, it's there. And it's there for very, it's gradually cleared over a while, but then it's always there. So one of the consequences of this non-cytolytic process for clearing the virus from neurons and allowing the neuron to survive is that you still have viral RNA around. It may vary in very small amounts, but it's still there. So that other, the other consequence of that is uh, that then the immune system actually has to maintain a presence in the nervous system to suppress reactivation of that viral RNA and the ability, you know, any new replication of the virus. So. So cells that are making antibody to the virus are also there then for the life of the animal in the areas in which this RNA uh, persists. So this concept that um, an acute virus infection actually is much more com complicated. It's not just virus up, virus down, that's the end of it, but actually that the elements of the virus persist for very long periods of time and that the immune system has to continue to uh, suppress that uh, reactivation of the, of the virus is probably one of the major things that we discovered. But then during that same period of time while I was in Dick's lab, um, he, as I say, he brought Sinus back from Australia, but he, he went and he spent three or four months in Peru, uh, basically as a neurologist on the teaching faculty in, in Lima. And there was lots of measles going on then. And measles has a number of neurologic complications. And so he was seeing lots of children that were developing encephalitis associated with measles. And that particular complication of measles, which was an acute encephalitis that occurs you know, right near the time of the rash, the acute disease, was very poorly understood. I mean, nobody really understood what the pathogenesis was of that particular disease. So um, we then started, uh, I then got interested in working on 
measles. And uh, so I've continued to work on measles. Now I don't work on the nervous system complications of measles anymore, but, uh, but primarily on understanding it's an immunosuppressive virus. So it's, it causes, actually, you know, it's a, an important cause of uh, more childhood mortality uh, still. Uh, and uh, it, it's death, the, the deaths that are due to measles-induced deaths are really due to other infectious diseases, not measles per se. So it's an immunosuppressive uh, virus and it makes children more susceptible to pneumonia diarrhea, etc. And if you're in, a, in an underdeveloped country or we don't have good access to medical care, then uh, there's a fair number of deaths that are associated with it. So I've been very interested in trying to understand that process, what causes the immunosuppression. And then, so just more, again, the pathogenesis of this particular uh, virus. And in this case, I mean, it's clearly a human virus. And in fact, it has really doesn't, there's no mouse model, no good mouse model. Uh, but so we work with monkeys. Uh, so that's all of that. Or and we then worked in Peru, and then subsequently I worked in Zambia uh, with uh, with children that have uh, measles again, trying to uh, understand this particular disease and again the interactions of the immune system to understand immune system. Uh, immune suppression and also to understand clearance, how do you recover then from this infection which doesn't have these complications of infecting neurons but we've subsequently discovered it it takes a long time to uh, to actually clear this virus infection and we still don't totally understand that but uh, um, well first of all one of the things that we defined was this encephalitis actually is an auto immune disease rather than uh, the virus directly going into the brain and causing the disease. So it's, an, it's a demyelinating uh, disease. This was a complication that would occur a, a week or so usually after the rash of, of measles. So measles is a rash disease. It, but you know, children could die and children could be permanently damaged. And it, it was known that that was more associated with, uh, with this demyelinating kind of process, which is a kind of process you see with multiple sclerosis, uh, which is a different cell in the nervous system that's damaged. Uh, it's the cell that wraps the myelin around the axons of the, of the neurons. But so what we did as a part of those studies is, is do the pathology and look for the virus in the brain, et cetera, and, and showed that it, the virus for the most part wasn't in the brain. And so that it, and it was, everything was consistent with an autoimmune disease. We then tried to compare the immune response in those children to children who just had uncomplicated measles, uh, you know, that recovered from their measles and didn't have this. This complication is pretty rare, actually. It's about one in a thousand. Uh, children, usually older children, actually get the complication, not the younger ones, um, and and found that well, first we found that the virus was very immunosuppressive uh, using a number of uh, in vitro kinds of techniques. I mean, people had known that it made you more susceptible to other infections for had been a clinical observation for a long time, uh, but then we tried to quantify that and try to define why and what was that immune suppression what what was wrong with the immune system you know, after measles that made you more uh, susceptible. And at first we thought we would see differences between the kids that 
you know, just recovered and the kids that developed this complication or kids that developed pneumonia and, you know, but it turns out they were all immunosuppressed. <laughs> and, you know, and we couldn't define big differences, maybe little differences, but we couldn't come up with anything that was very specific. I think now if we went back and did those studies again, we would have much better tools than, than we have now. It had it at that point, it was pretty early. But the things that we found that are surprising, um, I guess what we're recently working on, is that it takes a very long time to clear measles as well. And again, this is a virus, and we're not talking about the nervous system infection. It infects the lung, it infects lymph nodes. It, it infects, lot, all the cells that it infects are easily replaceable. What are they? they turn over, they're easily replaceable. The idea that after the rash of the, of the disease that you could, you can't recover infectious measles virus after the rash is cleared and, and that's the time that you know the fever goes away, the kids get better, they go home and, and they may still have this immunosuppression, they still have this susceptibility for another month or two after infection, but from other points of view, they look fine. And, uh, and so recently we've discovered that uh, that actually takes a very long time to clear measles as well. And that if you do these other techniques and look for, me it's always also an RNA virus, look for RNA. The RNA is there in the blood uh, for months after apparent uh, recovery, which may be very, which may be related to this immunosuppression. Uh, in fact, it's very likely that that's contributing uh, in some way uh, to the immunosuppression. But the fact that it takes so long to clear the virus um, was was actually. Uh, an acute virus infection, so we, we know lots of persistent virus infections, but I don't think people have really understood what, what goes on when it comes to clearing an acute virus infection and the fact that prolonged persistence of the virus is probably characteristic of most acute virus infections. Uh, I'm extrapolating now because we've only studied really two, but but they're so different. The infections themselves are so different. So, so now we're now we're trying to understand or define the mechanisms for for clearance of uh, of measles virus from well from blood cells. But if you look in lymphoid tissue, it's there for much longer than it is in in the blood. And you find it in the urine. You find it in the respiratory tract. Oh, all over for for months after um, after apparent uh, recovery. Between your husband's work as a neurologist and your research, um, it, how have you managed to balance work and your family life? Oh, well. <laughs> well, so we have two children, uh, now totally grown, and, uh, it, well, it, you know, in, in, in the beginning, well, first of all, once I came to Hopkins, I, I was a, really a postdoctoral fellow for the first, uh, you know, Three or four years and didn't have any clinical responsibilities. I think one of the things that we tried to do was to make sure that one of us wasn't on call. I mean, if you have kids, you have to have somebody that could be at home and at least at an emergency or something like that. Um, so, actually, my first son was born uh, just before we left uh, Stanford, and then the second while I was a 
while I was a postdoctoral fellow. And so during that period of time, I didn't have any clinical responsibilities, and so I really had you know most of the most of the responsibility. But uh, but I went back to work pretty promptly after both children were born and getting you know critical anybody any <laughs> any mother any parent knows these days getting good child care is the sort of the most critical factor for being able to to work or continue to work and you know hours were curtailed and that kind of thing when the kids were little uh, but you know I think that it, it was just a matter of you to set, set your priorities and you do what uh, what's most important at that particular time and that shifts as the kids get older you get a little more freedom to be able to to spend more time in the career kinds of things but certainly when they were small it was pretty much a nine to five kind of uh, job for for me without uh, a lot of work on weekends and and that sort of thing because again uh, Jack was doing uh, he, had, he had clinical responsibilities uh, as a neurology resident and during that period when the kids were littlest and so you know he had to be able to you know be at the hospital or whatever you know to have those uh, you know, fulfill those responsibilities so but when I was my nine to five I worked hard and I didn't spend a lot of time coffee breaks and <laughs> lunch breaks etc you know I, I, I felt like I was pretty organized so that I got as much done as possible during that period of time uh, plan things so that things could get done. What, what advice would you give to a young person interested in a career in science? Oh gosh, do, go for it. <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, you know, there's just no better career. I mean, if that's where your interest is, because it's, uh, it's constantly fascinating. There's nothing more fun than discovering new things, things that, you know, that are nobody else knew before that new puzzles that you can follow the leads and try to figure out you know what's going on whatever the question is that you're uh, trying to answer but uh, you know, it's constantly fascinating constantly rewarding constantly challenging uh, so hard to think of something better Since 1863, the nation's top scientists have been honored with membership in the National Academy of Sciences. Today, there are more than 2,500 in the NAS membership, of whom approximately 200 have won Nobel Prizes. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of Interviews and invite you to join us again for another inspiring conversation.